especially in the days before cell phones and pocket recorders and that sort of thing, the role of the uh, court reporter was a really integral part of our judicial system. When I, when I say that, what I mean is that um, uh, their responsibility was to, to write down verbatim Word for word, everything that was said, every little thing that was said um, in the court, they had to write it down. Now, one of the things that uh, uh, that means is that some of those court reporters were able to write down some, some pretty interesting conversations. Now, Skip Heitzig tells of one reporter who recorded the back and forth between a lawyer and a physician who was on the stand. Now, obviously, the lawyer was trying to turn the screws a little bit and make a point, but this is um, a word for word what was recorded. The lawyer said, uh, Doctor, before you performed the autopsy, did you check for a pulse? No. Did you check for blood pressure? No. Did you check for breathing? No. So then, is it possible that the patient was alive when you began the autopsy? No. Doctor, how can you be so sure? To which the doctor replied, because his brain was sitting in a jar on my desk. <laughs> the lawyer was persistent. He said, but could the patient have still been alive nevertheless? And the doctor, obviously losing patience a little bit, replied, yes, it is possible that he could have been alive and practicing law somewhere. <laughs> sometimes when you look at the evidence, sometimes when you look at the facts, when you look at what is spelled out before you, it's the, some conclusions are really, really easy to come to. Sometimes you can look at the facts and it's just so crystal clear what the conclusion is. We're going to see someone this morning, uh, a lady who, who looked at the facts and came to some really significant conclusions about God. If you have your copy of God's Word, which I hope you do, would, I would love for you to open it up to the book of Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2. And as you're turning there, just remind you, we are wrapping up one more summer in our summer series. And uh, we have been following the, the people of God as God has brought them up out of slavery in Egypt. And they wandered through the wilderness and they got to the edge of the promised land. And uh, the, God was like, hey, Take the promised land. And they sent 12 spies, one from each of the tribes of Israel, into the land. And when the spies came back, two of them said, yes, we can do it. But 10 of them said, there's giants in that land. And even though they had seen God bring them in miraculous ways up out of slavery and through the wilderness, and to this point, the people said, no, we're too scared of those giants. And so they turned around and for 38 years they wandered in the wilderness until every single person from that generation had died except for the two spies who said we could do this. And now 38 years later, those, uh, that next generation is in the exact same spot at the edge of the promised land. And God was telling them, go into the land and take the land. And the question before us as we get into our text this morning is... Are they going to drop the ball like their forebears did? Or are they going to trust the Lord? So that's the situation before us as we jump into Joshua chapter 2. Joshua chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Here's what the passage says. 
says, then Joshua, son of Nun. Now, I was always brought up to hear that that was Joshua, son of Nun. Not only does that sound weird in English, but apparently it's pronounced Nun. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Satim. Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab, and they stayed there. Okay, so we need to push pause and talk about this because there are a number of very surprising things that happen right here. The first surprising thing is that when we go into the story, you would think that the heroes of the story are going to be those two spies. Wouldn't you think that? This is like James Bond stuff. Of course we want the spies to be the heroes. But actually what we're going to find is that the spies are not the heroes. In fact, it's so surprising that the spies aren't the heroes that we don't even find out what their names are. And that is surprising because 38 years before when they sent 12 spies in, you can go back and look in the Bible and you can find out the names of every one of those 12 guys. But these two guys are completely unnamed. That's surprising. The second thing that's surprising is we do find out the name of the lady who ends up being the heroine of this story. Her name is Rahab. And Rahab is identified as a prostitute. Now, for centuries... Both Jewish and Christian writers have, have been working really hard to try to sanitize Rahab. And if you do any kind of research into this, one of the first things that you will see is uh, someone who says, you know what, the word that's translated prostitute, it, it could be rendered innkeeper. And that's true. Uh, but what we, what we have to understand is that um, an innkeeper, like they didn't have inns like we have inns, okay? We, uh, uh, when we think of an inn, we think of a separate building with individual private rooms that can be rented for your use. But that's not what was going on in that context. As an innkeeper, this would have been her house, a, a one-room house, right? That's what they had then. And foreigners or others would be able to come and stay in her house. And it was, we don't need to go into a whole lot of detail here, but it was all kind of part of the whole thing. That's how it worked in those days. So it's really not that surprising that the spies would have ended up there. But as the story is being set up, the, the, there are so many surprising things. A, the spies are not the heroes of the story. B, Rahab is the heroine of the story. And she has a whole lot of strikes against her that make this surprising. Let's count the strikes. Firstly, she's a Canaanite. She's one of the bad guys. Secondly, she's a pagan. She doesn't worship the Lord. She worships... Uh, foreign god. She worships other gods. C, she's unmarried. Uh, uh, number four, I'm mixing my things here, but number four, she's a woman. Number five, she's a prostitute. Like five strikes and you are out. It is so surprising that this lady ends up being the heroine of the story. A more unlikely hero, especially for the original audience of who this was written for, could not be imagined. So, we have these Hebrew spies that are staying at Rahab's house. Let's look at verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab, Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house, because they have come to spy out the whole land. 
But the woman, woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch them. But she had taken them up on the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. As soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. So we understand what's going on here. When the Israelites are going to invade Jericho, it's her city that's going to be attacked. It's her city that's going to be overthrown. It's her people that are going to fight and be killed. It's her neighbors and friends that are going to face all this. And we, what we have to understand is in that context, there was no Geneva Accords. There was no attempt to try and protect uh, civilians from armed combat. No, no, not at all. That's not how that would have went at all. These are her people. And it is so surprising that what she does is to, to, uh, to change her mind from following her old way of life to lay that all down and to turn to follow the Lord. It's so surprising. Why would someone do that? Well, we find out in the next verses. Let's look and see what happens in verse 8. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up on the roof and she said to them, I, listen to this, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on all of us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard about how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you so that when you came out of Egypt and what you uh, came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. This is the important part. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. That right there is key. Verse 12. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. Our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us this land. So she let them down by a rope through the window, for the house she lived in was part of the city wall. She said to them, go into the hills and the pursuer, uh, so the pursuers will not find you. Hide yourselves for three days until they return, and then go on your way. We find out a whole bunch of information here. The first thing that we find out is that the first time the Israelites were encamped at Satim, what we find out is that, that they, uh, all they saw was the giants in the land. All they could see was the giants. What they didn't know was that the people in the land were so afraid of them. And it's so interesting that, that uh, th those Israelites who were so afraid looked at their enemies, looked at their adversaries and said, look how huge they are. Look what giants they are. But what did Rahab say? The, the reputation of the Lord had gone before them. 
she wasn't necessarily afraid of the people. She knew that the Lord is great. And you know what? There's a lesson in here for us too. Because, listen, we all have adversaries. We all have enemies. We all have, have something, someone that we are up against. And you know what? That's part of the nature of following the Lord. Uh, the scripture is clear about that. If you are going to follow the Lord, you are going to have adversaries. That is 100% true. And when those adversaries look like giants, when they look to be so huge, that tells us something about us. What that tells us is that our view of God is small. Because when we see God for who he is, when we see him for as great and mighty and powerful as he is, no giant looks big at all compared to him. So you can just think of it like this. If your adversaries look huge, your view of God, your vision of God is small. If your adversaries look small, like the way for that to happen, the way to, to change your thinking on this is not to reach deep down and pull yourself up by your socks and, and uh, 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 dig up some bravery within yourself. What you need to do is make a, a, a decisive dedication that you are going to see God for who he is. And when we see God for who he is, our adversaries will start to look increasingly small. That's why our brothers and sisters in the faith for 2,000 years have been able to look down the barrel of a gun. They've been able to look into the flames and say, you know what? Uh, you know, it's like Pastor Matt said last week, quoting uh, one of the early church fathers, they can kill us, but they can't hurt us. When our view of God is big, nothing that anyone can do looks like a giant to us. Back to our story. Rahab had heard about the things that the Lord had done and she decided that she was done with her old way of living. Her people, her way of life, her king, her city. She said, I'm done with that. I've looked at the evidence and I know that the Lord is the God of heaven and earth. And so I'm changing teams. I am following him. It might be easy to see this as a uh, matter of um, self-preservation for her. But, but we have to see this isn't about self-preservation. This is about God changing her on the inside. This is about God transforming her. Not making her what she was, but transforming her and changing her to be a new person. She had decided that following the Lord was worth it. Let's look at verse 17 because their conversation continues. Now the men had said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless when we enter the land you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. And unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house, if any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. But as for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell anyone what we are doing, we will be, be released from the oath you made us swear. Agreed, she replied, let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed. She tied the scarlet cord in the window. And when they left, they went up into the hills and stayed there three days until the pursuers had searched all along the road and returned without finding them. 
And then the two men started back. They went down out of the hills. They forded the river and came to Joshua, son of Nun, and told him uh, everything that had happened to them. They said to Joshua, the Lord has surely given the whole land into our hands. All the people are melting in fear because of us. It's so interesting because the agreement that Rahab makes with these two spies, uh, there's something that rings very familiar about it. I'm not sure if you thought that too when we were reading past, but there's, where did they come up with this idea? It's actually pretty obvious where they came up with the idea. They came up with the idea from the Passover. Think about it. The judgment of God was coming. And what the Israelites had to do was to take the scarlet blood from the sacrificial lamb and put it on the doorway of their, their house. And when the judgment of God came into the city and, and saw the scarlet blood on the doorway of the house, the judgment would pass over that house. That's where the word Passover comes from. And in a very similar way, the guys say, hey, take this scarlet cord and put it in the window so that when the judgment of God comes on this city, when we see the scarlet cord, the judgment will pass over this house as well. We actually get to leave the story off here. And I know it's a little bit of a weird place to end the story and, and I get it this probably would have been a good place to pick up next summer instead of leaving it off this summer I, I understand that sometimes this is just the way things go but there's some very interesting things by way of follow-up I don't think I'm spoiling the story too much to tell you that uh, what ends up happening is that the the children of Israel do come into the land they do take the land they do conquer Jericho and and Rahab is saved we don't actually know a whole lot about Rahab after that, but we do know that um, God changed her. God transformed her from the inside out. We know that she left her old way of living. There's a couple ways that we know that. Uh, the first thing that we know from the scriptures is that she married a guy named Salman. And Salman, we don't know very much about him from the scripture, uh, but there is a Jewish tradition that says that Salman was one of those two spies who went into the land. And I don't know if that's true or not, but I think that would be pretty cool if one of the dudes that she saved, she ended up marrying. The other thing that we know is that Salman and Rahab had a son, and his name was Boaz. Um, Boaz ended up uh, uh, marrying a, another foreign lady, just like his mom was not a Jewish lady. He married another foreign lady named Ruth. Ruth actually has a, a book of the Bible named after her in the, in the Old Testament. And when you're reading through the book of Ruth, it sort of seems a little strange. Why would this guy Boaz marry this foreign lady? Well, all of a sudden, it kind of makes a little bit of sense if you realize that, hey, his mom was a foreign lady as well. She wasn't a Jewish person either. And Ruth and Boaz had a son. His name was Obed. Obed ended up becoming the grandfather of probably the most important person in the Old Testament, and that's Israel's most important king, King David. And so you can look at this person who was so unlikely. Rahab is the, the most unlikely, like five strikes and you're out, the most unlikely heroine that you could think of, and yet she becomes instrumental in the story of God's redemption, becoming the great-grandmother of King David. You can actually follow that line even further, and in, you can see this in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1. And you can follow that line even further, that family tree. It goes on and on until you find 
a lady named Mary, the mother of Jesus. Because it turns out that Rahab is the great grandma with a whole bunch of greats added in there of Jesus the Messiah. The most unlikely person that you could imagine becomes an integral part of the plan of God. There's some of you who might be sitting here and thinking, man, God, he doesn't want anything with me. Like I'm, I'm the places I've been, the things that I've done, God doesn't want me. He can't use me. He can't change me. I would point you to Rahab. I would say absolutely he can. You know what the other thing is? We could actually go through all these seats and we could pick out story of after story of people who frankly were not all that dissimilar to Rahab who God has changed on the inside. One of the things about being a pastor at a church for a long time is that like I've got all these stories kind of bouncing around in my head that I would like to tell except you're all here <laughs> and it's not really my story to tell but listen I can tell you God can change you. He can transform you from the inside out. There's another group of people that are sitting here. And if truth were known, you're thinking to yourself, boy, I hope there's some prostitutes that are hearing this message. I hope that there's some really bad people that are hearing that, that God can change them, transform them from the inside out. And to you, I would say, to us, I would say, that I'm reminded of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 21 when he was talking to the real self-righteous people talking to the real religious people. And he said, gang, the tax collectors who were the worst of the worst dudes, everybody hated the tax collectors back then. Maybe now too, I don't know. Maybe that's something that follows a parallel with us. I'm not sure. Nobody likes the taxes. But he said, hey gang, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. God can change us from the inside out. He can transform us. And whether we feel like we're unrighteous or whether we are self-righteous, God can change us. He can transform us. I heard another pastor say this, and I think this is dead on. He said, um, he said nature forms us. Sin deforms us. Schools inform us. Prisons can reform us. The world tries to conform us, but only Jesus can transform us. I think that's true. Only Jesus can transform us. And I would love to be able to talk to you and have the privilege of sharing how you can make that true of you as well. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for your great love for us. Thank you that, I mean, at the end of the day, we all have a story like Rahab. We were all a mess on our own, helpless and hopeless. And we needed God, we needed you to change us from the inside out. Lord God, I pray that you would help us this week to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. To him that we give all glory now and forever. Lord, as we jump into a time of fellowship now and, and being able to get some food together. Lord, we pray your blessing on this food. We pray, we are so thankful for those that uh, are here that made it for us. We pray that our conversation would bring you glory and that we would have a good time together enjoying each other and glorifying you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.
Amen. Listen, gang, I really hope you stay. Uh, I really hope you grab some food. If there's anyone who's not here right now, but their windows are down and they're listening, everyone around is welcome to come and join us as well. We got some amazing food trucks here. Remember, friends, that you are loved. Have a great week.